0: Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 20. We're reading today verses 1-6. through The Word of God says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him
1: Father, we thank you again for your goodness and your mercies. I thank you for this day. Thank you for the word of God. Amen. Uh, This passage is really going to be hard. I I know uh, there's so much confusion in it for a lot of different people, but I pray that you'll be with Pastor Doug this morning. Lord, keep your anointing on him and uh, keep him from any error. And please just... Give them a special anointing. I'm convinced if we can understand this passage, it would change how we live. It would change how we pray. It would change how we go out and witness to other people. It would change how we worship. We all believe in the eschaton that Christ is going to come back. Lord, how we get there, we're all, even myself, there's some confusion in some of that. And I pray, God, that you would help us all today just to see this passage the way it's meant to be. Amen. Yes. So that, that we can understand it today, Lord, so that we will <coughs> glorify you in our Hallelujah. lives and all that we do. I thank you, for it in Christ's
0: name. Amen. 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 So, like I told you, when we got started on this passage, it's been two weeks now. I didn't preach on this last week; we had a guest preacher. Like I told you, this is it's not an easy passage. It's like Wayne prayed, and it's not easy. Not just not necessarily because the imagery that's here is difficult for us to discern, but just because the imagery that's here presents us with some big questions, like the binding of Satan and the thousand years and this, uh, this mention of a first resurrection. These are big questions, and we've got to, to tackle those today. But the way I want to walk through this is just kind of go step by step through it just so that we all make sure we, we know what is here. So step one for us today, what I want to do is just lay out for you what it is we're seeing in these verses before we get to trying to, to explain it. So in verses one through three, we see an angel coming down from heaven. He's got a key and a chain in his hand. He captures Satan, he binds him, he locks him in the pit of the abyss. I showed you in our exposition of chapter 19 that the pit of the abyss is different from the lake of fire where the demonic beast and the demonic false prophet already had been thrown. Anyway, Satan is bound in the abyss for a definite period of time. It's called a thousand years here. And he's bound there for a definite purpose. That he might not deceive the nations any longer until. So that's what we're told here. And of course that leads us to recognizing that there is a future time out after the millennium in which Satan currently then bound during the millennium will be released to to lead a a final rebellion. And we're going to talk to you in the, in the coming weeks about this, as far as when this happens. I believe it happens right before God judges and puts an end to all evil in the cosmos. But that's the, that's the nuts and the bolts of what's there in the first three verses. We then come to verses four through six, and, and our attention gets shifted back to heavens where we see thrones, we see justice given to a particular group of martyrs and witnesses. We then see this subset of Christ's reign and of his saints with him, over that definite period of time, the, the millennium, and those saints are, are, that are participating in this aspect of the reign of God are said to take part in the first resurrection. And just to be clear, based on uh, what we talked about two weeks ago as far as the doctrine of resurrection, this mention of a first resurrection, it is a surprise for us. All believers, Genesis through, through Jude and the Scriptures, are taught about resurrection kind of ideas we we expect a general resurrection at the last day of physical bodily resurrection qualitatively new bodies made like unto Christ's glorious body we know about the life that you and I will have with God when these bodies die while we await the resurrection of that last day we also know of this talk of re- regeneration as resurrection you and I have been raised to walk in newness of life with Christ right now These are the things that we all know from the rest of Scripture. So we come here and we find a first resurrection. It's a bit of a surprise for us in as far as the doctrine of resurrection is concerned. We're then directed in the passage to this future coming to life of the rest of the dead after the thousand years are ended. And this I take to be the general resurrection of the dead that everybody anticipates. So I'm going to put this up here on the screen for you. Uh, This is just... Summing up, what are the things that we are seeing? We're seeing the millennium. It's a period of time. It's called a thousand years, during which Satan is bound in the abyss, at least in respect to the deceit of the nations. During which time Christ is also still ruling and reigning. His his reign is never going to end, but he's ruling and reigning over this time. And during which time at least the martyrs and the witnesses coming directly out of the suffering that is described in this book are given justice, they came to life, and they are also ruling and reigning with Christ. And we see that Satan will be released at a future time for a little while according to God's purposes. So just, just all of that track, just nod your head if, if you're seeing what it is that we're seeing here. So, so that's step number one. Step number two is over here on this board. We want to consider how various groups of Christians have dealt with the things that we see here in the Revelation and I've drawn it out here on the board these are two broad categories and they get broken down in several different ways by different groups I'm just trying to give you two broad categories here premillennialism and inaugurated millennialism in premillennialism after the incarnation life death burial resurrection of Christ ascension of Christ We're now living in the present age. Some people will call it the the church age. And the next thing on the horizon here is the second coming of Christ. And you know, there are some pre-tribulationalists and others that will stick those kinds of things in there. But this is just broad categories again. We're looking for the second coming of Christ. And it's at the second coming that Satan will be bound and the first resurrection will occur. And that's going to be all the saints from Adam through to the second coming of christ all those things will be given real new resurrected bodies and then that's going to usher in the millennial kingdom where christ is physically ruling and reigning bodily on the earth all believers are going to be walking around during that thousand years with immortal bodies ruling and reigning with christ there will be an Armageddon kind of battle right here as christ comes down to put down enemies so there'll be unbelievers that survive that, and they're living in this millennial kingdom. They're living and dying and having children. Some are saved. Some are lost. It's kind of a complicated scheme, but that's how they're seeing it. It's a physical millennial kingdom of exactly 1,000 years, not 999, not 1,001. It's 1,000 years. At the end of that, Satan is released for a little while, leads a final rebellion of all the unbelievers that are still in this millennial kingdom. And then there's general resurrection, final judgment, we get new heavens and new earth. That's a premillennialist scheme of how these things right here get worked out. Other broad category is this one inaugurated millennialism, where we've got the life of Christ here at the beginning. And then at the beginning of this millennial kingdom, so we're still here in the first century, Satan is bound. The saints reign with Christ. And this entire period right here, from then until whenever Jesus comes back, is the millennial kingdom. Christ is on the throne of his father David in the heavenlies. Right now he's ruling and reigning over all things. His people also are ruling and reigning with him. And we're just waiting for this release of Satan, a final rebellion, and a second coming, which will put an end to that rebellion and and extinguish all the enemies. General resurrection, final judgment, new heavens, new earth. Yeah? This is how various groups do deal with just this millennial idea. Now, the rest of our time, what I want to do, step three here, is just explain to you why I think this inaugurated millennialism is the best, most consistent way to deal with this text, all right? So the big questions that uh, any of you, see if I can get this to come up here on the screen for you. The big questions that any view you uh, has to deal with as far as this passage is, is concerned, are right here. Uh, how do we understand the binding of Satan? How do we understand this doctrine of the first resurrection? And how do we understand the thousand years? And how do we think properly about this particular aspect of the reign of Christ? These are the key questions that any of you will have to answer. And I'm just gonna go ahead in the beginning here and give you my answers uh, on these. Here are my answers, I'm putting them on the screen for you. Uh, Satan's binding is our present reality. The net result of that, whatever we think about Satan actually being bound in a pit, I think that he is. But the net result, its effect, is described by this text as not able to deceive the nations. So we are not talking about during the millennium, all demons bound, just specifically Satan, with respect to he cannot deceive the nations until he is Released. I'll explain what that means. The first resurrection, I believe, is spiritual and anticipatory. A thousand years, I believe, is symbolic, and it covers all of the time from that beginning of the binding of Satan through to his release for a little while. So far, it's been over 1950 years, and we're still counting. And then we have this aspect of the reign of Christ. I believe it is both heavenly and transcending, and that will make sense by the time we come to the end. So those are my answers to these big questions. And now I'm going to unpack for you how we got there. Now, at this point, it will have been very helpful if you heard the last sermon that we preached out of this book. In that sermon, I said to you that we need to be mindful of two things broadly. Number one, we need to be mindful of the key interpretive principles that are laid up out for us. In chapter one of the Revelation, and I just I listed out six things for you there in your notes. Uh, this is focused on Christ. It's highly symbolic. It's aimed at giving hope to its first readers and, and to all believers. It is addressed to a specific first-century audience. It's steeped in the language of the Old Testament, and it is rooted in history. We need to keep those things in mind as we come here to Revelation 20. And second thing, just broadly, I said we need to be mindful of what the original readers already knew about the things that are dealt with here. Specifically, we needed to be mindful of what they believed about Christ's reign and Satan's role and the doctrine of resurrection. As they come to the book of the Revelation as a whole, they don't come with blank slates. They they already have a robust framework for thinking about all of these things. So what we find here in Revelation on resurrection, reign, role of Satan, it's not entirely new for them. Uh, Revelation 20, 1 through 6, it is possible that it's gonna add some nuance to what they know or how they know what they know. It may it may bring out some way in which God is working out resurrection in a particular fashion. It may affect how they think about the reign of Christ going forward or the role of Satan in their lives going forward. But Revelation chapter 20 will not completely upend everything that the scripture has taught from the beginning through the book of Jude. It's just, it's not gonna do that. Scripture is consistent with itself. So we need to be mindful of those things. Does that make sense to you? Just give me a nod if it does. We gotta keep in mind the context. We gotta keep in mind what they are bringing to this. Now, as I answer these questions for you, explaining why I got here, we're gonna start with the easiest ones first. So we're starting here with the thousand years. With regards to the 1,000 years, I've answered for you, the 1,000 years, I believe, is symbolic. And it covers all of the time. It's a definite period of time. But it covers all of the time that Satan is bound until the time of his release. Now, how did I come to that conclusion? I'm just going to be plain and simple bottom line here. It's an exegetical choice. It is. And everybody faces the same choice because here is the truth and the reality Just just shooting straight. There is good exegetical reason for you to come to Revelation chapter 20 and to conclude with the premillennialists that the millennial reign of Christ is going to be exactly 1,000 years, not 999 years, not 1,001 years, but exactly 1,000 years. The number 1,000 is used hundreds of times in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and the vast majority of the time, it is quantitative. It's pointing to a particular number of things or a particular amount of time, a number of something, okay? So there's good exegetical reason for the Al Mohler's and the the John MacArthur's and those to come to passages like this and conclude the millennium is exactly 1,000 years. At the same time, There's good exegetical reason for coming to this passage and concluding that the thousand years is symbolic, just according to the way that the scripture uses the number 1,000 throughout. The number 1,000 in the scripture, it connotes immensity and fullness a wholeness, it's the totality of a thing. And it really is the ideal of a thing. It's 10 times 10 times 10 for the, the Jews. It's the, the cubed root of 10. And so this would connote, as far as time is concerned, the, the, the ideal amount of time. And i just to give you some examples from the Old Testament. Job 9.3. If one wished to contend with God, he could not answer him one in a thousand times. Job does not mean... If you get in an argument with God, as long as you will keep arguing for a thousand times on that thousand and first time, you will prevail with God. He doesn't mean that. He means if you are arguing with God, he's always right and you're always wrong. The fullness of times that you get in an argument with him, he wins. It's, It's the totality of a thing. Psalm 50 verse 10, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. It's not as if. Christ owns the cattle on exactly a thousand hills, and as long as you'll go to the thousand and first hill, then you can start to have those cows. No, he owns all things. That's the point of the psalmist. Psalm eighty-four, ten. For a day in your course is better than a thousand elsewhere. He is not saying that once you and I have been in the presence of God for a little over two and a half years, you're gonna want to be somewhere else. No, he means one day in the presence of God is better than the fullness of time anywhere else. That's that's the message of the psalmist. That's how the number thousand is used. Psalm 105.8, also Deuteronomy 7, 9. He remembers his covenant, the word he commanded for a thousand generations. Know therefore that Yahweh keeps covenant and steadfast love to a thousand generations. It does not mean that if you're born in the thousand and first generation, you're out of luck. It means God is fully faithful to his covenant across all time and eternity. The number 1,000 just connotes the fullness of whatever thing happens to be in view. So bottom line here, just being honest, this is an exegetical choice that I am making as I say the 1,000 years is symbolic. It's a choice that I am making based on the context here. It's what I think is most consistent, especially in light of that interpretive principle that come from Revelation one, 1 where this is gonna be a highly symbolic book, even in this chapter. Satan is called a dragon and that ancient serpent. These are signs, symbols that connote what he's like, right? This is highly symbolic. So just being consistent, that's the conclusion that I have come to. And other people, including some of our elders, have come to different conclusions and that's okay. So let me just make this appeal to you that I keep making as we've come through this series. Hold your position, but hold it humbly. None of it, this is, this is prophecy. It was was prophecy even as it was given to that first century church. It covers things in history. We don't know how all of these things work out. So I'm saying there's good exegetical reason for you to go either way on this. So just love each other with it. Be humble, be kind. This is not something that ought to divide the body of Christ. Whether this is exactly a thousand years or whether it's 1950 and counting is not the point. And if we let this cause division in the body of Christ, then we've, we've missed the whole heartbeat of the book anyway. So this is a choice that I'm, I'm making you do the same. Second, with respect to the first resurrection, I answered, the first resurrection is spiritual and anticipatory. So like we said two weeks ago, those first century Christians, like us, Like all of the Old Testament faithful before them, they have this robust theology of resurrection that culminates in a final day, last day, general resurrection of the dead. So they are seeing, they are looking forward to a day, a single day when all people who've ever lived and died will be raised bodily, bodily, physically, qualitatively new kinds of body, some to eternal life, some to eternal condemnation. Besides that, the scriptures know only that regeneration, resurrection has regeneration that we talked about last time, and that life that we have with God after these bodies bodies die that's, that's all the, the scripture knows are those those three categories that I put in your notes last time now like I said revelation 20 1 through 6 it is possible that this passage comes along along and introduces some nuance to how God works out the revelation or the resurrection rather the pre-tribulationalists for example they're going to see a resurrection when Christ sort of comes halfway and raptures his church out and then there's a tribulation period and then there's the second coming and there's another resurrection and then he comes back at the end. There's a general, so they got three resurrections plus the resurrection of Christ. So it's possible that Revelation 20 is adding some kind of nuance into how we understand the chronology of what God is doing as he's raising the dead for judgment. But if that is what this text is doing, if this first resurrection is a separate and additional occurrence of the physical, bodily resurrection, distinct from that general resurrection of the last day, then you need to know this is the only place in the scriptures that would be spelling it out concretely, if that's what this is. And I know my premillennialist, pre tribulational brothers would push back, but the fact is, all of those men who see, pre-tribulational rapture or mid-tribulational rapture of the church see it in types and shadows there is no concrete teaching in the scriptures about a rapture of the church before some tribulation period that leads into a there's just nothing there they only see it in types and shadows and every one of them will admit it there's no scripture in all of the word of god that says there's a rapture of the church or multiple resurrections if that's what this is doing it is the only time that it happens in all of scripture concretely. But given the, just the highly symbolic nature of this revelation as a whole, I'm not convinced that's what John is trying to do here. I'm not convinced that he's trying to give us this vision of another bodily resurrection of the dead that's in advance of the general resurrection. So this is where I've landed. It's just, it's a choice based on context. The first resurrection I believe is spiritual, it's real, We are really alive in Christ right now. We are really going to live with Christ when these bodies die, consciously worshiping Him, enjoying Him, enjoying one another in eternal glory as we wait for that resurrection of the dead. It's real, but it is spiritual. Not yet bodily in terms of these qualitatively new bodies that are promised to us throughout the Scriptures. But it is also, like I said, anticipatory. This resurrection life that we are living now, this first resurrection life that results in us being spiritually in the presence of god enjoying him it does anticipate the general resurrection of the dead that is coming at the final day we all will get qualitatively new bodies scripture is clear on that i mean the the principal argument for paul is if if the dead are not raised in a general resurrection then christ has not been raised and if christ has not been raised then you if your faith is worthless So there is a resurrection coming, but I believe this first resurrection here is spiritual and anticipatory of that final view. Augustine, this was his view. He wrote in the city of God, it is of this first resurrection in the present life that the apocalypse speaks in these words. He goes on, the church begins its reign with Christ now in the living and continues even in the dead. So just to state my view one more time, different words. This first resurrection is that spiritual resurrection of the inward man that begins at regeneration when we come to faith in Christ and it continues even after these current bodies die as we continue in life with God until the general resurrection of the last day when we undergo the physical bodily resurrection. But again, this is a theological, exegetical choice that I am making in light of everything else that is taught in the Scriptures. There are post-millennials who would disagree with me on this, who would see actually a very physical bodily resurrection of all of the saints from Adam through to those first century saints who are bodily in heaven right now, ruling and reigning with Christ. There are a variety of views. I'm just saying this is where I've landed. Based on how I read this, based on the context here, if you are not convinced, (laughs) it's fine. This is another one of those things where brothers can agree to disagree. This does not ultimately impact our faith in the gospel, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because nobody can prove their view. I can't prove that there aren't actually resurrected people with new bodies. I can't prove that Adam doesn't have a new body in heaven and Moses doesn't have a new body in heaven. And I can't. You can't either. And so this is just a choice that I am making based on what the scriptures teach about resurrection. We talked about that last time. So make your choice. Don't lose sleep over it. Amen. Be kind. Yes. Be humble with one another. Make room. Those are the 2 easiest questions. <laughs> and I say easy-ish only in the sense that you can go a couple of different ways and be consistent with the scriptures. And that brings us now to this question of the binding of Satan. I answered, Satan's binding is our present reality. And its net result, its effect is described by the text as unable to deceive the nations any longer until so we are not talking about a total cessation of demonic activity you and I all know that we are still surrounded by temptations all the time the demons of the principalities the powers the rulers of this the darkness of this world are still after God's people to draw our affections away from Christ and toward the world we're talking about a specific kind of binding so why have I landed here I said it's necessary to read the revelation as we read the revelation to be mindful of those key interpretive principles because those key interpretive principles laid out for us in chapter 1 of the revelation provide for us the context that we need to interpret any piece of this and context matters Context matters with respect to this question because it helps us locate this, I believe, in history. So if you have been tracking with us from the beginning of this study, then you recognize that this book was written, one of those principles says, to a particular historical group of people. It was written to believers in the seven churches of Asia Minor. And those people were about to witness the outpouring of God's wrath upon the covenant breakers in Israel. And the language of everything that we have seen so far in the revelation has carried us through this kind of linear experience of all of those events that led up to and culminated in the destruction of the temple. We have encountered a couple of recapitulations, sort of retellings of of some things, but the structure of the text has made that clear when we've encountered them, so mostly we've we've had this continuity of time, chronology, continuity, language that has helped us to recognize where, at any given point, we are, we are in the first century, as we read this revelation, and the same is true here in this passage. Verse one of chapter twenty starts out with the Greek words, "kai aden It's translated "then I saw" or and I saw the word Chi it is a conjunction and it links this passage chapter 20 to the chiastic vision of chapter 19 that we unpacked three weeks ago So chapter 19 flows into is the natural flow of thought into chapter 20 chapter 20 follows after chapter 19 so just looking back judgment has come Jerusalem has fallen The saints in heaven are rejoicing at the judgment poured out on Jerusalem, on those who persecuted her. There's this victorious marriage supper of the Lamb that began after the judgment came. And it's, I argue there, it's ongoing throughout this this present age. When you and I die in this life, we pull up a chair at the table and have fellowship with Christ until the next stage in all of this. But that's going on right now. We came through chapter 19 and Christ was riding forth in gospel conquest throughout the present age through the church militant, through you and me. The gospel is going out to the nations. And I I am thoroughly convinced that whatever you think about Revelation 20, the chapter 19 has to be placed as our present reality. It can only be seen as beginning in the first century and continuing on to today because just the way that it quotes Psalm chapter 2. Christ ruling them with a rod of iron. That's it's being viewed as already fulfilled. As the apostles preach their sermons in Acts, they believe Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm 110 are already fully fulfilled and are being carried out. So as Revelation 19 comes and Christ writes forth, ruling the nations with a rod of iron. That's quoted from Psalm 2. These are already realized. Realities for the first century church. So as Paul and Peter and John, they go out to preach the gospel, they recognize Christ has ascended to glory and he is ruling over all things and we are preaching in his authority now. So chapter 19 is the the present reality. We came to the end there. End of uh, chapter 19. Christ judged the demonic beast and the demonic false prophet crushed their armies, threw them into the lake of fire then chapter 20 comes along here. Still in that flow of thought to add further dimension to this victory of the Lamb over all evil. And chapter 20 does that by answering the question, what about Satan? What about Satan? And here's what I mean. The language of chapter 20 in verse 2, the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. That language right there directly recalls chapter 12 and verse 9, where that very same language is used to talk about Satan. Go back to chapter 12. Satan was thrown down out of heaven because Christ has ascended back to his Father. There was a war in the heavens. Satan was cast down to the earth. And because he's now out of the heavens, no longer has access to the heavenly places. He's going out in great fury. He knows that his time is short. And so he's persecuting believers. He's bringing the the powers of the then current world to bear upon the church It's great persecution. as we were preaching through chapter 12, we told you that 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 gave those early Christians some context for understanding the suffering that they were going through. Literally the entire world was coming against them (laughs) All of the Roman Empire and the Jews were coming against them, killing Jews. Even our preacher last week noted that Nero was burning Christians for his yard parties and for his night lights. That chapter 12 gave them some context for understanding what they were going through. Satan has been thrown out of the heavens. He is severely limited, and he's, he's panicked. And that's why you are being persecuted. So then chapter 13 comes along. Satan, who's now been cast out of heaven, he gives all of his authority to the beast. He's empowering Rome and that demonic beast. And they are coming after God's people. So we saw that further progression of persecution and suffering. And we see the souls under the altar crying out, Lord, how long? How long before you give us justice? Well, then chapter 19 is here and we find that the, the demonic beast is judged and the demonic false prophet is judged. But what about Satan who gave all of his authority and power? the beast that's the lingering question that is still hanging from chapter 12 there was Satan and the beast and the false prophet we've seen the beast and the false prophet judge So now what about Satan this passage comes along to answer that look again at verses 1 through 3 then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain He seized that dragon, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So just tracking with the flow of thought here, this event, the binding of Satan, follows immediately after the judgment of the demonic beast, the demonic false prophet, which followed on the heels of the judgment that we've seen poured out in the previous chapters of the Revelation, culminating in chapter 19, which ends up culminating in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the aftermath of that war through AD 74. So just in time and history, the context helps us locate this in the aftermath of the war that resulted in the destruction of the temple in AD That's why I've answered the question, how do we understand the binding of, of Satan with the answer, Satan's binding is our present reality. It's our present reality because it began in the aftermath of the war in AD 70 and it will not end until, like verse 3 says, until Satan is released for a little, little while. So I want to make sure you're recognizing here that the text makes a distinction between how God dealt with the demonic beast and the demonic false prophet versus how God is dealing with Satan. And I believe the text is doing, us, doing that to tell us God has a purpose for all evil. God has a purpose for Satan. We told you that the lake of fire is a place of final condemnation. You don't get out of that. That is the final End of all those who rebel against the kingship of Christ. The demonic beast, the demonic false prophet, they are already there. Christ is done with them. He has no more use for their evil in the cosmos. He's not done with Satan yet. So Satan is not judged finally. He's not thrown into the lake of fire yet. He's locked in the pit of the abyss because Christ still has a use for that demon, that devil, the ancient serpent. He's still got a use for him. So he's locked away in the abyss. He is bound. That is our present reality. And if we ask, in what sense is he bound? I'm still being tempted all the time. I simply answer, he's bound in the sense laid out for us in this text. That he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. Just understand, we talked about the role of Satan and the early church's understanding of his role. In the life of Christ, Satan was already being squeezed. Christ was healing people. He says, if I'm doing these things, the kingdom of God has come upon you. I have bound the strong man of the house. This is why demons are subjected to to me and to you, my disciples. That's what he's saying there as he's living on the earth. As he ascends back to glory, Satan is cast out of the heavens and he's even further limited by the dominion and the reign of Christ. But still, in that limited power that he had then he was able to get all of the nations of the world the everybody under Rome's authority at that time was zeroed in on God's people persecuting the church I've showed you literally millions of Christians were killed in the first century the gospel had gone to the far reaches of the empire by the time Paul and John and Peter are finished with their ministries in, in the 60s the whole world has heard the gospel and there are millions of believers and Satan is able to, to le- levy his power to bring all of the nations in a concerted effort to exterminate the church from the world. And what this is saying is Satan can't do that anymore. Not until. You'll see persecution in China. You'll see persecution in Iran. You'll see varying degrees of persecution in all of the Western countries of the world. But there is not possible this concerted effort of every every wicked, unbelieving person in the world and all the governments of the world working together to come against God's people and eliminate them from the planet. Satan does not have that power. He does not have that authority. In fact, Christ sends us out, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore. And the gates of hell will not prevail against you. When God's people are armed and going forth with the gospel, the enemy will always fall. We may suffer persecution, we may die, but the kingdom continues to expand in the world. That's what this is forecasting for the church. Persecution is coming, you early believers in Asia Minor, but there's victory around the corner and this church is destined to overtake All things. That's what I think about the binding of Satan here. That brings us finally to, I must have gone back. This aspect of the reign of Christ as we find it here in Revelation 21 through six. I answered, this reign of Christ is both heavenly and transcending. And here's what I mean. As opposed to the premillennial view of all of this, which sees the millennial reign of Christ as primarily terrestrial. So as we went through this, I said premillennialism sees a day when Jesus Christ comes again physically, bodily to the earth, and he's gonna be ruling and reigning over fallen people who are still living and dying and getting married and having kids, but it's happening on the earth. It is a terrestrial reign. That's premillennialism. So as opposed to that, I believe Christ is ruling and reigning in the heavenly places at his father's right hand on the throne of his father, David, right now. His kingdom is decidedly not of this world as the scriptures say in John eighteen thirty It is a heavenly kingdom. The apostles, as is evident in Acts, as I've said before already in this sermon, they clearly interpret Psalm 2, Psalm 110, which speak of Christ's reign over all things. They see that as present, already realized, ongoing, inaugurated realities for the church. So as they're ministering in the first century, as they're writing those things that would become our New Testament, Christ is ruling and reigning already with a rod of iron over all things. That is the reality, and he's doing that from heaven. So that's the first part of the answer there. Second, though, As opposed to, so in inaugurating millennialism, we've got post-millennialism, which is where I land, and we've got all-millennialism. Post-millennialism is very optimistic and all-millennialism is pessimistic, meaning all-millennialism believes that the reign of Christ ultimately doesn't impact things on the world. We're always gonna be a minority. We're always gonna be persecuted, put down until Christ comes and rescues things, Okay as opposed to that all millennial view that sees the reign of Christ as primarily heavenly and primarily spiritual. I believe this heavenly reign of Christ is also transcending. It transcends its heavenly origin and affects our lives on earth in powerful and significant ways. The kingdom of Christ, I believe, as I read Daniel, as I read other passages of scripture, is destined to overtake all all of the kingdoms of the world for scripture says christ must reign until all enemies are put under his feet and though i don't think we have to wait for the second coming to begin to realize that christ is ruling and reigning right now he is sovereign right now he is over all things right now he is riding forth in gospel conquest through his church militant Right now, and I believe that if we will be faithful and we will depend on God and we will preach the gospel, that we can see the, the kingdom of God expanding more and more and more until the day arrives when Christ returns in glory. That is the hope that I have in Christ Jesus. We do not have to see the world getting worse. What we do in our lives, it does matter. As I've said to you so many times in all of this, Christ's reign is heavenly, but it is also. Transcending, and it affects our lives. And I get this again by just remembering these key interpretive principles that are laid out for us in the Revelation, namely the first one, and the third one, and the fifth one on your list. This is focused on Christ. This is aimed at giving hope to its first readers. This is steeped in the old covenant language. So, Revelation 20: 1 through 6 is emphatically a victory passage. We've come to expect that sort of thing as we've come through the revelation and we notice it's focused on Christ and it's designed to encourage believers in all their sufferings. That's the first or the third point on your list there. But when we consider the Old Testament backdrop here, this victory proclamation of Revelation 21 through 6 becomes all the clearer. And I'm just going to stick up here on the screen. Oops, go too far. This, uh, this is the NASB translation of Revelation 20, verse 4. It's also very similar to the King James Version. I'm putting this up here because these translations actually do a better job of giving us a word-for-word translation of the verse here, Revelation 20, verse 4. And that is important for us being able to see the Old Testament connections that John is drawing here. So in Daniel chapter 7, and we've come through this in some different ways throughout this study, but Daniel... Chapter 7, which is the principal background of Revelation 21 through 6. We read in verse 9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So already you can begin to see the similarity of languages, especially there in the Septuagint. But as I looked, thrones, in Daniel 7 and 9, here, and I saw thrones. Then in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 10, We read, and the court sat in judgment. So again, you see the continuity of language here. And they sat on them. So Daniel 7, as I looked, thrones were placed. The court sat in judgment. Revelation 20 and verse 4, and I saw thrones and they sat on them. This then in the Daniel vision moves into verses 13 and 14 that are the center of that whole vision. And it is the reign of Christ. The Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days to receive the kingdom. And he receives a kingdom that will never come to end. It will never pass away. That decidedly happened. We've shown you over and over and over again. That happened at the ascension of Christ. We are not waiting for Christ's reign to start when he comes in the second coming. Christ is ruling and reigning. Right now he received the kingdom from his Father at his ascension. That is our present reality. Daniel 7, 18 then continues. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And so there, even in Daniel 7, we see the saints of God ruling and reigning with the Messiah who has received the kingdom. Then one more from Daniel 7. Verse 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. We've already seen that in the Revelation. Until the Ancient of Days came. So we're going back to that vision of the court sitting. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. It's that phrase, judgment was given, that I want you to pay special attention to because it's that phrase that's the third phrase in our Revelation 20 in verse four. And I saw thrones and they sat on them And judgment was given to them. This is taken out of Daniel. And I saw thrones, Daniel 7, 9. And they sat on them, Daniel 7, 10. And judgment was given to them, Daniel 7, 21. So John looks back to this Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9 through 21 passage, the center of which is the reign of Christ over all things. And he brings that Old Testament passage into view here in Revelation 20 and verse 4 with this reading. And it's against that Daniel backdrop that he gives us what follows. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark in their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years years again this is decidedly a victory statement and I want to put this up here for you the ultimate objective of this whole text is this to demonstrate the absolute authority of Christ over all evil in the cosmos including his purposeful use of that evil He's used the, the demonic beast, the demonic false prophet. He's used Rome. He's used the religious apostates in Israel to accomplish his purposes. He's got Satan bound, awaiting to be used at another date and time in the future. God is sovereign over all things. This is exalting Christ. It's also intended to celebrate the victory and the hope that the, the people of God will have as we overcome in Him. And it's aimed to call for the perseverance of the saints. This passage decidedly is to exalt Christ and to encourage saints. And now, seeing all that and knowing all that, we can take a step back and see the big picture of how this passage does this. We we find that it says to believers who are suffering, who are, who are going to continue to suffer, many of whom are going to to suffer unto death. It says Christ is the undisputed and victorious reigning King over all things. He's sovereign over every evil that you will ever go through. He go through. He judges whom He will. He judges when, when He wants to, how He wants to. Some He casts in the lake of fire, some He'll lock in the pit. He is sovereign and ruling and reigning over all things, and He will absolutely preserve His people in faithfulness unto death. Believers stand victorious in Christ, and their destiny is spelled out for them here in this passage, also in Daniel chapter 7 as it concludes. Daniel 7, 26 and 27, I read this. But the court shall sit in judgment in His dominion, that is the dominion of the enemy in all of its manifestations. His dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and His dominion shall serve, all dominion shall serve and obey Him. This is that for which we are all destined and Revelation 20 1 through 6 is unveiling that for us Christ's reign is heavenly it's ongoing it's transcending so the by and by it is overtaking all things So, what are the implications of this for us we're, we're done here I think first and I'm just gonna take 60 seconds to explain the, to say this one because it's come up in every sermon so far Christ is sovereign over all things including your suffering. That's what verses 1-3 through want the believers to know. There is no suffering that you have ever gone through, even in your unbelieving life. There is no suffering that you've ever gone through. There is no suffering that you are going through, that you will ever go through, over which Christ is not absolutely sovereign. And the believer can take joy in that. This... This truth here is the confidence of Paul as he writes in Romans chapter 8. All things are being worked together for our good. It's the confidence of Peter as he writes in 1 Peter chapter 3 about the suffering that refines us. It's the confidence of James as he writes that we can take joy in all of our troubles and trials and tribulations and temptations knowing that Christ is using those evil things to shape us to be more like His perfect self. Amen. So just main, one of the principal implications here is Christ is sovereign over your suffering. God feels your sorrows. He feels your pain. But he's using those things for his glory and for your good so that you and I can take comfort in it. Second thing, and this is what I really want you to get here, because it is our post-millennial hope. Your reign with Christ has already begun. It's not something you are waiting till death for. Your reign with Christ, if we're reading this rightly, I guess I could be wrong, But if if we're reading this rightly, your reign with Christ has already begun. Those words of Augustine, the church begins its reign with Christ now in the living and continues even in the dead. Our reign with Christ is now. And if we ask, what what does that even look like for me to rule and reign with Christ? Well, it looks like you being a faithful steward over the things that God has given you. One of the most humiliating things about most of our governmental leaders here in these United States is their absolute ignorance of the Constitution and of the laws that we have. The will of judges that just ignore constitutional statute and just impose their will upon people. The will of legislators who just pass laws that are utterly contrary to the foundations of this kingdom. We're just talking about an earthly kingdom here. It's not really of any consequence. If the United States passes away tomorrow, who cares? It's the kingdom of Christ that transcends all things. So as a believer who is ruling and reigning with Christ, don't expect more of your president and your judges and your legislators than you are willing to give yourself. You are called to know the constitution of this kingdom. You are called to know the commandments and the principles of what pleases our God and King. You are called to be following after Him in the Great Commission. You are called to be followers of Christ who are ruling and reigning with Christ right now. Understand, God created Adam and Eve and He gave to us the creation. Mandate to go, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to subdue it, take dominion over it. And that dominion was handed over by our first parents in their sin. The image of God vested in us was marred by sin. But now Christ has come. The gospel has shined. That image of God has been restored by the last Adam who is Christ. We are renewed. We are resurrected in the first resurrection. Satan is bound and he sends us forth with his new image and all of his authority. And he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel go live that out you are a new Adam and a new Eve go and shine the image of God in the world so husbands and wives you are commissioned just like the original Adam and Eve were you're commissioned by Christ to go in his authority knowing his word to to raise up a godly generation to be fruitful and multiply to train your children in the way that they ought to go you want to rule and reign with Christ take dominion over your own house rule your own lives Know how to order and prioritize your work and your study life and your marriage life. Know how to serve and love one another. We are not sitting around waiting for a hell of a rescue. We are on a conquest mission. Christ is ruling, he is reigning. His kingdom will take over all things. And he is inviting you not to hunker down and just hold fast until he shows up, but to be taking over all things. Not politically, not by sword not by winning offices but by changing hearts none of us has to run for office to change these united states of america you want to change this country you preach the gospel to your neighbors you live the gospel faithfully you stop losing your children by not caring what they are doing spiritually in their lives the world is killing its offspring there is a negative birth rate among sinners they're taking hours because we're giving them, our children, eight hours a day in public education and never asking a question about what our children know. They're taking our kids and raising them for themselves because Christian parents aren't ruling and reigning, you're surviving. We're losing our children. We're called to go out and preach the gospel to our neighbors and we're losing the citizens of the kingdom that are in our own homes. So I say one of the chief ways that you can rule and reign husbands and wives is to be godly and love each other. Amen. Be faithful to each other. Men, stand up and lead your wife in a godly, not self-centered, self-serving way, but lead her in a godly way. Lead her in the Word. Lead her in prayer. Lead her in worship. Wives, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Do so in 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 an educated, godly, god-edifying sort of way so that you also know the word of God and you are ruling and reigning with your husband on the earth, committed to bringing up godly offspring. Young people and kids, obey your parents. Follow after Christ. You don't have to wait to grow up and get out of high school and get a job to begin to rule and reign with Christ. If you are believing in Christ right now, you've been baptized, you're in the church Start ruling and reigning with Christ right now. Take dominion over your life and start investing yourself in the Word. It's what Paul is already saying to the churches in the first century. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Rather, you reign over your sinful flesh by the Spirit of God who is within you. The Spirit is calling the church to go through intense suffering, faithful to Christ, recognizing that their king is on the throne, their enemy is bound, the gates of hell will not prevail against them, the kingdom of God is going to continue to expand and grow and flourish, and and we have part in that. What you do matters. How you work matters. Your work in the world, whether you are working for some manufacturing company, or you're, you're growing food, you're teaching kids, your work matters that you do it as unto the Lord and in a godly way, that you live not by lies. And And I offer you this challenge. We are living in a country now that has just codified a redefinition of marriage. That may mean that in effect, you have to make a choice between your job and living by lies. Notice that those who overcome in this revelation, one through six, are those who held fast to the testimony of Jesus, who did not take the mark of the beast. For these first century Christians who would survive all of that, that mark meant saying, Caesar is Lord with the right hand, burning the incense, having the mark so that you could have a job and buy and sell groceries. If believers had capitulated and given in to the cultural demands of those around them, then they have no part in Christ. It's plain. It's plain. You give in, you say Caesar is Lord for the sake of money and food and comfort, survival. If you love your life, you will lose it. But if you will lose your life for Christ's sake and for the kingdom, then you will have it. We may suffer. These laws will have far-reaching effects. You may be asked to capitulate, to, to give in to the cultural demands on sexuality, marriage, don't do it. Don't bend, don't break, hold fast. Those who persevere in faithfulness, allowing the scriptures to give us our worldview, to stand in kindness and loving kindness and proclaim the truth, those Christians rule and reign with Christ. Those Christians, over them the second death has no power. But if we fall, if we crumble, if we give in, if we love the world more than we love Christ, there is no guarantee for our future. Hold fast to Christ. He is victorious. We march in gospel confidence. We endure in gospel confidence. Our king reigns. Dad, pray for us. Amen.